Well, thanks, uh, Bev, for the reading. Great to have it before us. If you can keep that open, uh, that would be really helpful. We're going to be looking at uh, that passage uh, today as we continue our series in John uh, that we started last week. I think we now have our last week's message up online on our podcast. So if you missed last week, uh, you can go back and catch that up, um, which would be great. Uh, I'm going to pray and ask that we might make the most of this opportunity that we have this morning. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for preserving this part of Jesus' life. Thank you, Father, for John writing it down. Thank you for the faithful communities that held on to this and copied it so that, Father, today in this place, we can have it translated and in every hand. Father, we pray that we might not just read these words, but we might meet the author. And we ask that you might help us to have exactly that happen today by your Holy Spirit. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the intervening period from chapter 1 to where we are in chapter 2, last week we saw that Jesus was with God in the beginning. Do you remember that? And that he was God and that all things were made through him. After that introduction, we met John the Baptist as well. Do you remember that? We met John the Baptist. Well, after that introduction, in the bit before we get to chapter 2, John meets some... uh, meets Jesus, and the disciples of John have a little encounter. I just want you to see one little verse here uh, in John uh, chapter 1 and verse 35. It says, the next day John was there again with two of his disciples, and notice whose disciples they are, John's. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? I'm reading on a little bit. They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying and spent the day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. So what what happens is uh, John the Baptist, who has got quite a crowd of disciples, sees Jesus and says, look, the Lamb of God. And some of his disciples goes, that sounds like a pretty good offer. We're with him. And so they say goodbye to John the Baptist and they hook on to Jesus and start following him. And so by the time we get to chapter 2, the rest of it is more disciples being accumulated. By the time we get to chapter 2, there are probably six disciples following Jesus. Okay? But certainly at this point in time, John would have had a bigger following than Jesus. Definitely. The interesting thing was, there's a whole crowd with John. He says, the Lamb of God. How many people leave his party and join Jesus? Well, we're told here, two. I'm not even sure if that was disappointing for John or not. I'm not not 100% sure. But he did lose a few to Jesus. I think the really interesting thing is that there are a stack of other people who totally missed Jesus, didn't they? So if you hear someone say, the Lamb of God... I mean, today we just go, that's weird, but, but it meant something at the time, right? It, it meant the Lamb of God is the, is the Passover sacrifice. And, and, and John's saying, this man, Jesus, is the Lamb of God. People are like, oh, yeah, that's good. Two people decide to go and fight. So what I want you to see this morning is possible to hear and to miss Jesus right there in their midst. And what I want to be thinking about this morning with you is, have we missed Jesus? Have we missed Jesus? 
Well, let me show you where we are on the map. I'm always a big fan of trying to think as I read these stories that they're not made up. They're not Mr. Men. They happen in real space and time and geography. And so it's, it's really interesting. Let's dive in a little bit. Here's, uh, here's Israel, if we sort of come in a little bit closer here. Uh, here's my map of uh, Jerusalem and Bethany. So that's where John the Baptist was baptizing, uh, near Bethany across the Jordan. Uh, so that's here. So pretty close to the capital city is where John was doing, uh, was doing his ministry. Then we get to chapter, uh, chapter 2, and we're told there was a wedding that took place in Cana in Galilee. And you all nod your heads and go, oh, yeah, sure, just up past Norellan, yeah? We, we don't really know where that is, do we? Some of you might be pretty versed in the Bible, and you might know that Galilee's up the north, but, but here's something interesting. I decided to put them on the map. Ha- have a look at this. Where did Jesus grow up? Jesus grew up in Nazareth, yeah? And here's Cana in Galilee. It's about, well, my map says it's, I was putting my thumb on it to try and do the measurement. Anyway, it, it's, it's less than 10 miles. I don't know what a mile is these days. It's, uh, it's about 15 kilometers, something like that, away. Close enough that it would actually be local, right? And that's good to know as we look at what happens, uh, what happens here in the wedding, Well, I was talking about missing Jesus, and we're talking about weddings. Uh, I almost missed a wedding. Uh, I went across to to India for a friend's wedding, and I actually went to find all the really cool photos of the wedding, and this was the only photo I could find. This is on the plane on the way home. so, So not spectacular in any way, shape, or form, but there's me looking a lot younger. It was probably about almost 18 years ago, I think. But uh, I was going across to the wedding, and there was a massive stuff up. My plane uh, took off and then had engine trouble and had to go back to Singapore. And then they had to replace parts. It was an Air India flight, you know, so everyone's literally praying on the plane as it turned around. Um, and anyway, they, it took 24 hours to find the right parts to get them flown into Singapore and then change it. And then in the middle of the night, we flew out of Singapore a day later than when we were supposed to leave. And... Um, and I missed the first day of the wedding. But it was handy because it was a multiple-day wedding. So how good's that? Uh, if it had been an Australian wedding, it would have just been all done and dusted. So I flew in at 4 o'clock in the morning, and um, my very good friend in the seat next to me, um, who we became good friends over the flight, uh, warded off all these taxi drivers and said, no, 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 come with me, I'll find the right person. Took me to my hotel, and uh, I went to uh, find these guys. We were triple-sharing a room. And I woke them up at four o'clock in the morning and they said, well, you better get to sleep. I said, well, I'm planning to. And they said, no, 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 the wedding starts in an hour. I said, what? And they said, yeah, yeah, the second day of the wedding starts at five o'clock because that's when it's auspicious to start. Anyway, I went, it was a huge crowd, massive amounts of food everywhere, uh, all sorts of amazing things to eat. I had to remember not to eat with my left hand, which is very rude, so I sat on my left hand. All these, all these sorts of things. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. At the wedding, the wedding went for multiple days. It involved this mass of people, this huge community of people who lived around them, and it was all about abundant provision. Now, I actually think that's a pretty good setup for what we find uh, in, in uh, John chapter 2 here. Have a look with me at verses 1 to 3. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. 
Okay, a couple of things to note. First of all, I think having looked at the map, it's fair to say that this wedding is local. It's a local wedding. And so it's not so surprising. Jesus' disciples and he weren't famous celebrities in Galilee that you just had to have so the paparazzi would... Do you know what I mean? I assume that they were local. And so it made sense to have them be invited. More than that, I think it was a family wedding somebody that they were related to. And the reason I think that is because who's the first person to work out that the wine has run out? Mary. Well, whether she's actually the first or she's one of the first, okay? And the reason we know that is because the master of the banquet, he he isn't going, hey, everyone, stop the party. DJ, you can stop mixing the tunes, you know? Um, There's no more wine. He's not saying that. This is a conversation that happens, it appears, before the the party grinds to a stop. And so I'm arguing that if Mary's involved enough to know that the wine has run out, she's not just a guest, she's actually there as someone who's on the inner circle. So I'm going to suggest, speculating, that it's a family wedding. And that's why Jesus and his disciples uh, are invited. The other thing, uh, the wedding's in trouble. So if you're at an Indian wedding and there's no food, well, you're definitely in trouble. If you're at a Jewish wedding and there's no wine, you're in trouble. Uh, It would be a huge uh, loss of face if you can't provide for your guests, okay? Something terrible has happened. And so it makes sense that Mary, who's related to the family speculation, is just saying, hey, we can't let this happen. And so what does she do? Well, she goes to Jesus, doesn't she? And then I think we get one of these bits where we kind of, I don't know, we we get a little bit worried about what happens in this next scene. So have a look with me at uh, at verse 4. So she's just come up to him and said, I love this painting, everything's so beautiful and serene, isn't it? Oh, darling, let me just tell you, I believe they've run out of wine. Anyway, I'm sure you're not having that same moment, I am. But um, they said, uh, they have no more wine. Uh, that's what it says in, uh, in verse 3. And then verse 4, we get this woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. Okay, I think for most of us, this is just one of those head-scratching things. Sorry? It's your mum. We'd say, will you really speak to your mother like that? Okay, so let, let's think for a second about, about what's possibly going on here. So, uh, Mary, we, we like Mary, yeah? Mary's great. She's amazing. I think she's one of the most incredible people who ever lived because she got a tap on the shoulder from an angel saying that she would give birth to who? The Son of God. That won't happen to too many people historically. Uh, in fact, it'll only happen to one in all of human history. So she was that chosen woman. She bore for nine months the Son of God. He was born, and then we had angels. We had shepherds and we had magi, yeah? Remember all that stuff? Christmas isn't too long ago. So at this point, do you think Mary knows something about how special her boy's going to be? Yes. We know that we saw early in his life that he's in the temple and he knows lots of answers. He's able to talk with the rabbis. So he's smart. He knows things about God and, and about the law. But I think Mary must have just been sitting there going, when will it happen? When will it happen? When are we going to see 
the son of God who I gave birth to. You, do you remember the, the royal gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh? Where do I see all that royal power, authority? When do I see my son like that? Now, just before, Jesus has been baptized by John the Baptist. And John the Baptist has said, here's the Lamb of God. I think Jesus, I'm speculating again, I reckon Jesus has told his mum it happened. I'm going to guess he has a good relationship with his mum. Okay? I reckon he's told his mum, mum, never believe what happened at the Jordan. No, I don't think that's what he said. I I think he said, mum, John and I were in the Jordan and I think it's the time for it to start. The Holy Spirit has come on me and I think it's time for me to begin my ministry. I reckon they've chatted. And so here's what I think is happening when, when she comes up and says to him uh, in, in John, 4, uh, John 3, uh, 2, 3, says, um, they have no more wine. I think she says they have no more wine. But here's what I think she's thinking. Is everyone, is everyone clear that I'm speculating here? Here's what I think she's thinking. Here's your big chance, son. Here's your big chance, son. You're looking for a launch event. Why don't you impress them and they'll be yours? Right? There's a problem here for your family. Okay? You're the son of God. Can you get on to this? I reckon there's an awesome chance. All these people are local. They all know you. Why don't you do something about this problem and take care of it? Why don't you launch the whole show right now? And he responds, woman, woman, why do you involve me? My time, my hour has not yet come. Well, let's unpack that for a second and try and understand why he said that. First thing, um, whatever you want to say about it, woman isn't mama, okay? It's kind of more mom, okay? And, and at that level, it's kind of more probably New York taxi driver than the queen. Hey, ma'am. Uh, it's a bit more like that. It's, it's, it's a, a distant address rather than an intimate address. Does, does that make sense? So, so it's more of a mom. The second bit, uh, why, why do you involve me? Um, I think it's a bit like this. Um, do you know who this is? The Lone, the Lone Ranger and Tonto. Fantastic, excellent. Uh, the Lone Ranger and Tonto surrounded by Indians. And, and, and uh, the Lone Ranger turns to Tonto and says, you know, we're surrounded by Indians. And uh, he turns back and says, what do you mean we, white man? You haven't heard that before? Right, okay, all right, good. So in other words, uh, there's no we here, there's you and us. And, and I think at some level, Jesus is almost saying, what do you mean we? So, so Mary comes, come on, hey, 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 we, we have a problem here. And I think Jesus is saying, why, why do you involve me? He's saying, what do you mean we? I, I, don't, I don't have a problem here. Uh, I've actually begun my ministry, and I think he's saying, I am on the track of my father's will. My biggest family obligation now is actually to my father. Do you notice again and again and again with his family, you know, hey, your family's outside. And Jesus looks around and says, actually, anyone who's doing my father's will is my family, my brother, my sister. Do you remember that? Again and again through the Gospels, it seems like Jesus distances himself from his family. Not because he doesn't love them, but because he's esteeming, I think, his relationship to his father. Really interesting. So I think he says, Mom, what do you mean we? We don't have a problem here. 
which is to say, my first priority doesn't lie at this wedding. And then he mentions his hour. He says, my hour has not yet come. And he's not saying, until three o'clock, I can't do any miracles. He's saying something far more profound. This hour actually turns up all the way through John's Gospel. I want you to see three occasions where it turns up. So in John chapter 12, Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So we've been waiting. When is this hour coming? When is this hour coming? Then in John 12, he says, this hour has come for the Son to be glorified. In John chapter 12, a little bit later, he says, now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it's for this very reason that I came to this hour. The end of his life is drawing near. And then in John 17, when Jesus is praying, he says, after Jesus has said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. So when Jesus is standing in the banquet, he's saying, hey, Mum, it's not time for me to start the end process. It's not time for a big show today. My hour has not yet come. But he does something because he cares. He does something that's actually related to what he is there for, but he doesn't do it in a huge and showy way. Now, uh, have a look with me at uh, John chapter 2 and verses 5 to 9. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. I love it. I I don't think think she feels any brush off, if if, if, if you can see that. So she's not like she's sulking. She doesn't feel what he just did was rude, even though we do, right? You with me? She just says, hey, servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Now, I hunted around to try and figure out something. What's 30 gallons? Da, 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 da. Apparently, it's 115 litres. And then I went, what is 115 litres that I can pull up on the stage here to show you how big it was? And then I came across the perfect thing, which has written on the side, what's... Literage it is, 120 litres, and then I thought I'd better not pull that up on the stage. But what I want you to imagine, you're all familiar with these objects, aren't you? So here's my, here's my red bin, 120 litres. How many have you got? One, two, three, four, five, six. You're looking at that? That's a lot, right? Let's read the story. Okay, so we've got six of them. I would love to have had six red bins up here. That was just going to be a little bit hard. Uh, Verse 7, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw out some water and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, hey, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you've saved the best till now. Fantastic. I absolutely love it. What can we observe here? Well, first thing I'd like to say is something ordinary is transformed here. So water. It's the most ordinary thing there is. It's ordinary water for the purpose of cleansing. And what happens to it is it gets changed into this stuff. How fantastic. I don't think it had a label like that on the front, and it definitely didn't look like a red bin. But it gets transformed from this stuff here, which is totally okay for me to drink up in front of you, 
to, to this stuff here. Something has actually changed. A real transformation has happened in this very ordinary substance. The ordinary is transformed. Secondly, let's agree that that is a lot of wine. I'm guessing. So if it's, if it's six times 12, who can do the maths for me? So 720 litres are sitting in front of you right now. 720 litres. How much wine do you think they needed? Well, I did some walking around and I started to think about it. I, I Googled until I found out, how would you transport wine in the ancient world? Uh, the, uh, the Romans would transport, uh, transport it in amphorae, um, which were uh, big um, uh, clay things. Uh, they would take 40 litres, okay, which is two jerry cans worth. Okay? Um, it's probable that the, the Jews weren't moving it around like that. Remember, Jesus says, don't put new wine into what? Wineskins. So then I'm going, wineskins. What do you make wineskins out of? And I found out that was goat's skin, so that's cool. So then I go, what's the volume of a goat? So I Googled that some more, and that's about 39 litres, okay? All right, so let's say that there were some goat skins floating around, a couple of goats, uh, and so maybe we've got about 80 litres of wine on hand. Now, whatever you were doing, we now have 720 litres of wine on hand. It's worth saying we have a lot of wine on hand. I, I want you to note it's not for getting sloshed. Is everyone clear on this? Be, be, because the party can't possibly have been about getting sloshed. Do you know how I can know that? Well, first of all, the Old Testament looks down on drunkenness all the time. Secondly, what sort of party was this? It was the sort of party where they had how many jars, how many stone vessels for doing what? They had six for what? Ceremonial washing. This was a pious crew. Do you get it? So, so it wasn't, I am going to get these guys. That wasn't the point. It wasn't the point. It was abundant provision. Abundant provision. Uh, has anyone walked the overland track in Tasmania? If you do it, they tell you to start at Cradle Mountain, where I was here when I took this photo. Start at Cradle Mountain and go to Clare Lake, uh, Lake St. Clair. It's a stupid thing. You start at the best and you go to this small little skanky lake in the bush. No good. So my brother and I did it the other way. Because that way you're always getting towards the bit that's the good bit. Some of you might leave, you know, the crackling to the end. Do you know what I'm talking about? Some of you lead it first so that no one else takes it. But, but you get the idea. We save the best till last. And that's exactly what happens in, in verses 9 to 10. The, 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 uh, the bridegroom says, uh, the, um, uh, the, the host of the banquet says to the bridegroom, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. He's not inferring everyone there was sloshed. He was just saying it's general practice. General practice. So what do we notice? What kind of wine did Jesus produce in abundance? The good stuff. Imagine I had a bottle of Grange here, which I don't because I couldn't afford it. It's the good stuff. Apparently, incidentally, Israeli wine was rubbish, apparently, in the ancient world. So maybe it wasn't hard to be better than that. But anyway, that's what the Romans said. But Jesus has produced an incredible vintage with no cellaring sitting in a cellar. If that doesn't mean anything to you. Yes, right. It hasn't aged at all, but it's brilliant. Jesus has just knocked it out of the park. It's the best. And he's upturned the old order. So the old order used to be, 
wait until everyone can't taste anything anymore and then bring out the rubbish. And what's being observed here is actually something extraordinary has happened. The best has come last. He's upturned the order. That's very, very symbolic for John. He's upturned the order. And then thirdly, he's averted a crisis. Do you think they've got enough wine now? That should last them a while. I'm going to know that in a moment, he's actually done something else by producing that much wine. Um, now, Andy's here. Hey, Andy. Uh, this, this is us going to Adelaide. Now, imagine, imagine we were, we're in Mildura, about 1,000 kilometers away. Imagine we got to this sign. It said Adelaide, and we went, wow, we've arrived. This sign is made out of sturdy aluminium. I love the way these rivets are in here. The word Adelaide just looks beautiful. I think we're just going to stay here. We've arrived. Who needs to go to the real thing? I've got the sign. The sign is brilliant. I'm just going to marvel at the sign rather than go to the city. Would that be smart to do? No, it would not. Don't stop at the sign is the point. Have a look at verse 11, and it says this. Verse 11 says this. What Jesus did here in Canaan of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. What he's saying is it's not magic, it's a sign. So Jesus didn't do a cool party trick. He did something that pointed to something else. It wasn't like, wow, we've got heaps of wine. That's awesome. Well done, Jesus. It was actually this transformation was pointing to something else. It was trying to tell us something about Jesus. And if you get stuck at the wine, you're marveling at the sign, not what it's pointing to. So, we have got to see where the sign is pointing. Let's, let's see some points of application from, from where this sign, this transformed wine, was actually pointing. What, what should we see? First of all, we should see something about God. We should know something about our God. That the first thing we should see is that God's not stingy. Now, if, if he's omniscient, he could have gone, all right, party goes for another three days. On average, every person drinks three and a half cups across the course of the day. There are 85 people here. I am going to produce exactly the amount of wine that's required. That would have been possible, wouldn't it? How much wine does he produce? 720 litres. That's got nothing to do with calculating carefully. It's got everything to do with what I've said next, that he blesses abundantly. He blesses abundantly, more than ever we could ask or imagine. That's the character of our God. And what does he bless with? He blessed with the best. He doesn't just go, well, look, I'm going to produce a really concentrated form of cordial in this one. And then if you just tip that one into the other ones, you'll be able to dilute it out and it'll be okay. It's the good stuff in abundance. It's the best wine that they've ever tasted. Fourthly, we're going to see that God the Father is Jesus' priority from now on. Jesus' passion is always for his Father from this point on. And it's important to note that that is what's going on. Jesus will always seek to please his Father. As people pile in on him, I want you to watch the laser focus. Jesus says, I am working because my Father is working. I can only do what my Father says to do. He is speaking, I am speaking. All the time, Jesus will say, my focus is my Father. It's great. So what does it mean for God to be abundant? You guys might doubt me that God's stingy. Okay? You might think maybe he's a bit stingy. Have a listen to these beautiful verses here about God's generosity. Given it will be given to you, a good measure pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. 
Or maybe this one, God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. It doesn't mean that you will always have the best wine. It means that your heavenly Father will lavishly and abundantly care for you. Care for you. And then I love this one. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. What is our God like? He's able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. What did Mary want? Just keep the wine from running out. What happened? Immeasurably more than she could ask or imagine. We've measured it, but you know, that's kind of beside the point. What do we learn about weddings? Well, I think, I just want to note here, I think weddings are affirmed and celebrated. Jesus goes to a wedding and he helps them celebrate. Weddings, I think, really matter to God. They are a beautiful celebration because they point forward to the wedding, the great wedding, where the people of God are married to the Son. And I think Jesus at this wedding was longing for his bride. He was going, gee, I wish it was over. My hour hasn't yet come, but I'm longing for it. As I watch this happy couple, I'm thinking, I'm a single bloke, but I'm looking forward to the day when I will stand in glory with my bride. We see it in the Old Testament. We see God saying in Isaiah, I'll just get you the end here, as a young man marries a young woman, so your builder will marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. How beautiful is that? That's in the Old Testament. John the Baptist says the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens, listens for him. He's full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and is now complete. John says, you know what? I'm the bridegroom. I'm the bridegroom. I'm the attendant to the bridegroom. Jesus is the bridegroom. And I've seen him. And I'm going to leave him to his bride, his people. Revelation picks it up right at the end of the Bible. Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come. His bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was brought for her to wear. See weddings? God loves them. What do we learn about cleansing? I think this is fantastic. First of all, we see in the Old Testament, the Levites are told they need to wash or they'll die in God's presence. That's pretty clear, isn't it? You want to come into the presence of God? You've got to wash yourself clean. Job and David say, God, you need to come and wash me. David says, wash me and I'll be white as snow. Though my sins are like scarlet, wash me. Job says, oh, that there was someone to speak on my behalf, to mediate between God and me. Somebody, God, you have to come and wash me. And then we see the Pharisees who go, washing, it's really important. Let's wash our hands, our feet, our cups, our kettles, our pots. So what did they do? They took a longing of the heart and turned it into a religious factory. Cleansing for them became a ritual that you did all the time. Wash everything all the time. And that way maybe we'll be right for God. We heard what Jesus had to say about that, didn't he? He said, you'd let go of the promises of God and you are hanging on to the traditions of man. You've traded in what was God's and now you've turned it into religion. You've lost it. I think the really extraordinary part of this cleansing has to do with the best bit till the end. 
that, that, that last little bit of cake. In Exodus, we see water turned into blood, and what happens? Everything dies. Jesus is at a party and turns water into wine. What's that? That's about affirming life. It's a total transformation. At the start, in the Old Testament, Moses, the law, death. In the New Testament, water to wine, life, new life relationship. I, I, I think this is what happened. I'm, I'm totally speculating. I couldn't read this anywhere, but here's what I thought. There were six stone jars for doing what? Ceremonial cleansing. Why does Jesus fill up 720 litres of wine into their ceremonial washing? Here's what I reckon. I reckon he did it so they could not wash ceremonially anymore. Isn't that amazing? See, if it's all filled with wine, where do I go to do my hand washing? Can you see this? So the one who's in their presence, he is the one who will cleanse them. You don't need to go to the water anymore because the one who fulfills that promise, the best till last is here. So the true cleansing has arrived. It's arrived in the person of the Son. How good's that? And we see that beautifully uh, here. We, we see Jesus marrying together, marrying together, joining together these concepts. In Ephesians 5, it says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by washing with water through the word to present it to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any blemish, but holy and blameless. See, what's Jesus doing? He's the one who's going to make us clean, not ceremonial washing. His blood through the word will wash us so that we're acceptable to God. Bring it on. But I asked at the start, will we miss Jesus? It's interesting. The people at the wedding banquet, did they become Jesus' disciples? They didn't, as far as we know. It says that this sign resulted in the disciples putting their faith, in, their faith in Jesus. So I'm saying that 80 people at the banquet drank the wine, thought it was awesome, and were totally ignorant to the one who transformed it. So I'm going to argue it's possible to be in the presence of Jesus, to receive his blessings, and to miss him. Does that sound like our world? To receive his blessings, to see the miracle, Jeff was saying this to me before we started, see the miracle of birth, to see the miracle of a new day, to see the miracle of life and not thank the one who provided it. It's possible to be utterly ignorant and to miss the presence of the Son. That's dangerous, isn't it? Secondly, we got some people who actually saw the miracle. Do you remember the wait staff? They knew that the water had been turned into wine, didn't they? And so they saw it, and what was their response? Well, as far as we know, nothing. They remained totally silent. So did they get Jesus? I'm going to say they missed him. They saw the miracle, they closed their mouths and just went, wow, what a cool trick. Pass the prawns. Not the prawns at the Jewish wedding. Anyway, there you go. What about Mary? I think Mary was deeply expectant of something to happen. And I reckon she made it. She saw her son do something there and she put her faith and her trust in him. Beautiful. What about his disciples? Well, his disciples were observant. They saw what had happened and they did the next thing. They put their faith in him is what it says in verse 11. 
they got him. They got Jesus. They saw and they responded with faith. So what's the danger in our ritual? Does any of you wash your hands before you come? Maybe you should incidentally, but okay. Um, Here's, I think, our Sunday ritual. You ready? Here's our Sunday ritual. Shower, smile at the door, sign the kids in, sing a song, sit down, sign out the kids, speak to someone over coffee, and then scoot. Sound about right? Except for those of you who aren't signing anyone in. Very good. And if you're not signing them out, add that into your ritual. That'd be great. Thank you. Uh, But here's the thing I want to ask. Here's the thing I want to ask. In our church ritual, in our church ritual, does it need Jesus? In our church ritual, do you need Jesus on a Sunday? Because I reckon it's possible to do all of that and go home again. I reckon, I want to ask this question, does your ritual, being here, encourage you to meet with Jesus? Or do I come and plonk my body here and do the activities and then... Here's what I've been thinking, and I was challenged by Liz after our um, life group the other day. We open the Bible a lot, which is great. We do it in our life groups, we do it in our personal lives, we do it in our church here. We, we open the Bible, and we want you to know more. I want you to know more than you, you left this morning, right? But here's the thing, knowledge is great, so I'm not ever going to denigrate. I want you to know a lot. But here's, here's what else. I want you to be knowing the one it's about. I want you to be knowing the one it's about. Not, not just knowing about him, but knowing him. There's a real Jesus to know. It's possible for us to go through our Sunday ritual and miss the Messiah. This, this, has, been, this has been hammering me for a, for a little while. I need to not miss Jesus. I need to not miss Jesus. I can be busy for him. I can be about his business. I can be hanging out with you. Am I meeting with my Messiah? Am I getting to know him, depend on him, lean on him, trust him, love him? I've got a prayer I want to encourage you to pray if, you, if you're struggling like me. Here's, here's the prayer I, I try and pray. Help me follow you, Jesus. What, what does that assume? That there's actually a Jesus to follow, doesn't it? So, so when you're praying, when you're praying at home, is there a Jesus out there somewhere, maybe, perhaps, or is he real? Does he want you to follow him? My answer is yes. So I say, help me follow you, Jesus, today, really. And when I do that, I'm totally different. It's really helpful. If I, if I sit there and go, there is an actual Jesus. He has a path laid out for me. He wants me to follow him. He wants me to make more and more like him. He wants me to love him more. Help me follow you today, Jesus, really. Can I encourage you? Don't miss the Messiah. Don't miss him in the midst of our religion. Well, what needs to be different? If you're new and you're just going, hey, I'm just learning about Jesus, come and join me for Jesus for the Curious on Tuesday night. It'll be great. Jot down your Care and Connect card. I'd like, like to come along. For the rest of you who've been following Jesus for a little while, can I encourage you to be refreshed in following Jesus? He's really there. And he'd love you to know him more and more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you for the great invitation that's before us. 
an invitation to know you. I pray, Father, you forgive us where we descend into ritual and we lose you for activity. Father, would you refresh our hearts in a passion for you? Help us to love your son and know that we are loved. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.